Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Ronald Reagan is often upheld as uh, the conservative gold standard, the Republican president that led the golden era for a lot of Republicans. And Henry Olson uh, was so compelled by Ronald Reagan that he wrote a book about him. Henry Olson joins us now. He's author and senior fellow at Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. It's the center to the right uh, leading group. And he joins us right now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He just uh, released his book, The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the return of blue-collar conservatism. And in the book, you highlight some of his democratic roots, mm-hmm. some of his uh, admiration for FDR, who is thought of as a very liberal president. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to accomplish with the book? Well, what I wanted to accomplish was two things. One is to show who the real Ronald Reagan was. He's somebody who never left his admiration of FDR behind. In fact, many of his most famous lines uh, were unattributed but direct paraphrases of FDR. For example, the 1980 close in the 1980 debate where he said, are you better off than you were four years ago, was a direct ripoff of FDR's fifth fireside chat. But more than historical, what I wanted to show was that that attitude, that combination of traditional conservatism, of freedom and conservational liberalism, of giving people a hand up in American life is what Reagan was all about. And that was the secret sauce. That's what let him win. That's what let him set the agenda. And that today's Democrats and Republicans have separated into partisan squabbling brothers, neither of whom understand what Americans want, which is the continuation, not the repudiation of Franklin Roosevelt. So you wrote this book when President Obama was in charge, right? I mean, it it comes out now, but I imagine this was written during a period pre any reality of President Donald Trump. How does that change the equation for you? It doesn't actually change the equation that much. And it doesn't because, oddly enough, what Trump did was uh, tap into the Reagan Democrat. Trump is the first person since Reagan to carry the five Midwestern states that are dominated by blue-collar whites, the traditional Reagan Democrat, Iowa, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And he did it by focusing on their concerns. He came out and he said, I understand you're struggling. I'm going to put you at the center of my agenda. I'm not going to touch, unlike those other Republican socialists, Security and Medicare. I'm going to deal with getting your jobs back. And that was a modern version of what FDR did in the Great Depression, saying he cared more about these people than about financiers on Wall Street, and a modern version of what Reagan did. He was focusing on the blue collar white, uh, but blue collar voters generally, but particularly the blue collar white. And he won their support in a degree that hasn't been seen at all since the degree that they backed Reagan in the 1980s. So are the measures that we have seen out of the President Trump administration, uh, have they been coherent with what President Reagan would have done? No. Uh, Trump campaigned more coherently than he's governed so far. Uh, A lot of the things that he talked about that would have appealed to these voters are falling by the wayside. I think that the debate over the health care replacement bill is a perfect example of that, that he said he wouldn't cut Medicaid, but in fact, the bill cuts Medicaid. He said people wouldn't lose their health insurance and it'd be cheaper. In fact, there's a great risk that people will lose their health insurance. He's become more of the traditional Goldwater right anti-state Republican in office than he can 
campaigned as, and that's a huge problem for him. What would Ronald Reagan do with the uh, GOP health care plan? I think Reagan would want to cover as many people as possible, but remove as many regulations as possible. Uh, Reagan said uh, throughout his career that uh, he believed that nobody in America should go without medical care uh, because of a lack of funds. He supported that when he was a conservative in 1961. He supported it when he was a governor. He tried to expand various medical programs as governor and as president. So I think that Reagan would try and cover as many people as he could, but do it more efficiently through the private sector than through a mandated benefit structure, which is what Obamacare was. In the introduction, you talk about how you grew up in California as a staunch Republican and how you volunteered for GOP causes. And you uh, really looked up to President Reagan as an archetype of a good leader. I'm wondering, do you still identify as a Republican? I do, uh, but I identify as a Reagan Republican. Uh, and and I, what I've come to do is understand my idol better and consequently uh, become even more devoted to what he believed than I was when I misunderstood him. Uh, it's harder, though, today to be a staunch Republican when you see um, the sort of uh, mistakes, when you see the sort of oftentimes disregard for the wishes of the common man that too many in our party Exhibit. And I'd like to see a return to what worked and what Americans want, which is a Republican Party that focuses on love of the average person rather than love of an abstract ideal or love of the pursuit of wealth. You know, uh, President Reagan oversaw the U.S. during a time of remarkable economic growth. Uh, he oversaw inflation de de decline while growth accelerated. It was considered a golden economic era, but there is a lot of discussion and, frankly, dissent about whether the sort of voodoo economics, the trickle-down economics that he espoused was responsible for that or whether that was something else altogether. Where do you fall on that? Well, I think, uh, one, Reagan never espoused trickle-down economics. What Reagan did actually was criticize that. Uh, he always spoke of an, a humane economy. He spoke about the American worker, not the entrepreneur as the foundation uh, of the American economy. In fact, when his first budget director had a revealing interview in 1981 and said that Reagan's tax plan was actually trickle-down and disguise, Reagan criticized him for it and, as they said, took him to the woodshed. Uh, what Reagan believed was that incentives work for everybody and that uh, people from all spectrums of the economics ladder contributed to economic growth. I think a lot of what Reagan did helped increase the economy. I think lowering tax rates on everybody. Today, we've got a top tax rate of 40% on the richest people. Well, you used to have a top tax rate of 40% people, forty on the middle class before Reagan got into office. His tax rates were so much higher, he brought them down and encouraged everybody to work more. And deregulation opened up new industries that were unimaginable before Reagan. I think he was very much responsible for the economic boom that occurred on his watch. What proportion of congressmen, of senators and uh, representatives uh, currently adhere to Reagan Republicanism, in your view? I think more in practice than in theory, that what they've been, there's a number of people who are uh, remain unreconciled to uh, the New Deal, remain unreconciled to uh, a mixed economy. And these are like the people you find in the Freedom Caucus, that Rand Paul, Ted Cruz. But I think a lot more Republicans are there where Reagan was, but they just don't have a language for it. They've been told that they have to talk in terms of freedom and opportunity and entrepreneurship and trickle down. Uh, and so they don't pursue the sort of policies that in their heart they might want to pursue, but they don't really have a grounding for going forward. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. 
I could talk with you for another hour, uh, particularly about the trickle-down point, which is uh, an issue that I would love to understand a little bit better because it's sort of a narrow distinction there between uh, high tax, you know, lowering taxes and expecting it to go into economic growth versus trickle-down, what you label it. But um, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Author Thanks for having me on. Henry Olson uh, is an author and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center based in Washington, D.C. His new book, The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism, is out now. And it's a fascinating look at uh, one of the Republican uh, heroes in American history. Well, last week I read a survey that was somewhat alarming. Income investors, according to the survey, seek an overall average rate of return and expect a rate of return of 8.6% on average. This is according to a Leg Mason survey. That is higher than they have been able to get recently and is higher than many money managers can imagine that they could possibly achieve at a time when average high yield bond yields are 5.7% compared with an average of more than 8% over the past decade. Michael Buchanan joins us now. He is Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Western Asset Management Company, which is an independent affiliate of Like Mason, uh, and it oversees $433 billion. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Um, have you ever seen such a big gap in investor expectations versus reality? Well, I can't tell you that we've actually gone out and, and measured that gap on a regular basis, but um, you know, I would say that uh, intuitively, it definitely feels uh, today that um, that gap is is certainly large, and is it you know as large as it's ever been? Not really sure, but it's it's certainly up there uh, in terms of uh, magnitude. Well, here's why it seems somewhat concerning: if investors want more than 8% returns, there will be some money managers who say, look, I can do that for you. I can lever up something uh, that's fairly risky at a time of high valuations and ostensibly rising yields. Uh, and you could you could win big. You could also lose big, but you could win big. <laughs> do you see that happening? Um, there, you know, there's always that risk. And I think it's a good point. I mean, there aren't too many opportunities out there uh, where you can even get close to that type of return. So I think uh, Lisa, you're right. The only way you really can get there is with leverage. And, you know, our view is, you know, you don't necessarily have to solve for that. Just because investors expect that type of return doesn't mean we actually have to go and try to reach for that. But we, what we do want to do is make sure that we're utilizing all different parts of the fixed income market to uh, minimize that gap in a, in a thoughtful way, in a, in a good risk-controlled way. Do you think that because investors have that expectation, they will be more aggressive and it will fuel gains in areas that some people think are already perhaps stretched, like high yield? Yeah, I think, you know, to some extent, um, we're seeing a little bit of that. But I think we're we're far from uh, a point where I would call valuations in a lot of these traditional fixed income markets, whether it's high yield or, or structured products or emerging markets, I don't feel like we're at a point where uh, valuations are, are stretched. Certainly, uh, all the central bank accommodation has caused uh, investors to uh, reach a little bit in terms of risk. But I still think when you, you go back to 2008 and the crisis, that was so damaging that it really did 
damage risk uh, profiles, investor spirits. Uh, so it's just taking longer than it normally would to have those investors take that uh, or take on that that risk seeking behavior that you know ultimately will and and does get them into trouble. So given this gap in expectations and reality, how have you kind of rejiggered your uh, recommendations as for how people should allocate specifically within fixed income? Well, we definitely are encouraging and have been encouraging our clients to emphasize the the income-oriented sectors, the, the so-called spread sectors, and those are, uh, like I just mentioned, um, in, in no particular order, corporate credit, um, specifically high yield uh, and bank loans, uh, select emerging markets, uh, structured pro- products, whether it's uh, non-agency mortgages or uh, uh, CMBS. Uh, so there's a lot of areas within fixed income, and one of the things that we're seeing, and we think this makes a lot of sense, is when our clients give us uh, the the allowance to make dynamic allocations to these sectors. In other words, it's not a dedicated allocation, but they say on opportunity, um, we're going to let you allocate to the various sectors and really kind of take advantage of the best risk-adjusted returns within those sectors. So you don't see, it sounds like, um, irresponsible investing by fellow money managers, let's say, using a lot of leverage or, or kind of creating a riskier environment for some of these already uh, somewhat riskier asset classes? You know, I really don't. And, and people will, will talk about high yield in that capacity or that regard. Uh, the amount of triple C issuance uh, is still relatively low. A lot of the more aggressive structures that you typically see uh, when a cycle is getting ready to turn, these are you know, kind of deferred interest mechanisms like pay-in-kind bonds. We're really not seeing a lot of that. We're still seeing a lot of investor uh, discipline uh, in terms of the, the high-yield market. And uh, I always say right now that it's, it's, it's a lot easier for a company to uh, bring a, you know, double B, kind of, they call it a four-and-a-quarter, four-and-a-half percent yield deal. You can sell a lot more of that than a triple C deal with a double digit coupon because right. I think investors are still, you know, again, they're 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 still very cautious. So embedded in your outlook seems to be an assumption that we will not have a recession in the next twelve months, perhaps eighteen months. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely our view. We think that um, the economy is, uh, you know, sort of a slow growth uh, but positive growth, uh, uh, an environment that necessitates uh, continued accommodation, even as the Fed is removing accommodation. Um, but we don't see those headwinds that um, really give us a, a lot of cause or concern for a recession, uh, certainly in the near term. What's the biggest risk? I mean, is there anything that you're looking at right now that could change that view? Yeah, as, as portfolio managers, you're always you know, trying to think about uh, you know the risk that that can uh, you know really damage your your main view. Um, you know, I think China is one that um, kind of comes and goes, and uh, I, you know there there is clearly you know when you think of China, it is a big growth engine for the global economy. We all know there are some latent risks there, and um, if 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 China were to um, you know, underwhelm if if you saw a little bit of a hiccup there, if you saw some of those risks in, in corporate credit start to manifest that, themselves into more volatility or slow, slower global growth, you know, those could all uh, derail the, um, the, the momentum of the uh, very fragile recovery. 
But right now, things look copacetic. Uh, thank you so much for joining for joining me. This is really a fascinating issue. And this gap uh, between investor expectations and the reality is something definitely to keep an eye on. Mike Buchanan, he's Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Western Asset Management in Pasadena, California, I believe, overseeing $433 billion. Let's talk taxes. This has been the big issue for markets. Everyone has been waiting to hear how much President Trump will cut taxes, and I should say also Paul Ryan, uh, in the House. Lindley Browning joins us now. She's a tax reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Fairfield, Connecticut. And uh, Lindley, before we get into the details of what some people are expecting from the tax proposal, I would love to get a sense from you. What do we have that's concrete about this proposal uh, other than that brief uh, less than 200 word description from President Trump a while back? Do we have something more concrete to base assumptions on at this point? Well, we, as far as Donald Trump's uh, tax proposal goes, no, we don't have anything more concrete. We have his uh, roughly 200 word bullet plan proposal in which he reiterated his previous calls for the corporate rate and, in fact, the rate for all types of businesses uh, be cut to 15 percent. So but do we have are there any um, bills that have come out of the uh, House or the Senate that sort of map out a little bit more concretely what they're looking to do? No, we have nothing on the level of bills or legislative language. Everything right now is on the level of arbitraging concepts and seeing, you know, what can be done in the name of quote unquote tax reform. Uh, Senator uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, of course, has put forth uh, and his proposed uh, rate of 20 percent. But it's not clear that that uh, could be afforded, given the opposition to other measures he's proposed that would help pay for that rate cut. So arbitraging out the different scenarios, experts that you have spoken to came up with this 28 percent figure, which is far higher than the 15 percent tax rate that uh, some Republicans have called for uh, with respect to the corporate tax rate being lowered. a lot of experts say 28% is much more realistic. Can you talk a little about that? The reason 28% roughly is more realistic is because it's a rate that under rules of uh, budget funding and deficits could be wrangled to, quote unquote, pay for itself. The idea is that if you want permanent tax reform, i.e. not just temporary rate cuts, uh, those uh, any rate uh, reduction in the corporate rate has to not increase the uh, budget deficit over a period of a decade. So the question is, how do you how do you fund? What what are the pay fors for a rate cut? And right now, the things that uh, the House Republicans have proposed aren't really going anywhere. Uh, the border adjustment tax and the elimination of the net interest deduction those collectively would raise about two point two trillion over a decade. That would more uh, than offset a rate cut to 20 percent. Trump has no proposals to pay for a rate cut to 15 percent. He's been arguing that, well, you don't really need to pay for is you're going to get increased economic growth and that's going to sort of pay for itself. So in other words, a lot of the Republicans in Senate and the House don't buy that argument. They want to 
they want a balanced budget. They're not going to just go for uh, uh, cutting the taxes first and, and hoping that, that growth will offset it in the future. No, they may not. They may, in fact, uh, do away with the idea that uh, tax cuts cannot increase the federal deficit over a 10-year window. And in fact, they may seek to extend that window to 20 years or 30 years. It, it's completely unknown right now. How much does the health care bill weigh into this? You know, it's for both sides have said we want to get health care done before we get tax reform done. They both sides have made that very clear. And the takeaway on the street right now is that if you can't get health care done, how are you going to get tax reform done? Uh, the latter is a much uh, thornier uh, and bigger problem. So in other words, it kind of dampens the uh, hopes uh, for certainly a 15 percent tax rate, uh, which probably also factors into why people are, are kind of settling on the 28% as sort of a, a more likely scenario, possibly, too. Yes, that is correct. Thank you so much for joining me. Lindley Browning, tax reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Fairfield, Connecticut. And rarely have I heard a time when taxes were such at the forefront of markets. I mean, this has been absolutely uh, the biggest driver in some people's estimation of uh, some of the stock gains and the Trump bump, uh, the expectation that tax cuts will bolster corporate growth. Green on the screen across the board, across major U.S. indices, as well as overseas. Uh, Dave Wilson joins me now. Dave Wilson is Bloomberg Stocks editor, columnist and blogger at MLive. Go on the Bloomberg. You should check it out. It's wonderful and comprehensive. Dave, what is driving today's gains? It's a hard one to kind of pin on much of anything, to be honest, other than a market that's got momentum. You, You see the financial stocks leading the way within the S&P 500. And uh, certainly that's a a group that has been through the ringer a bit lately with uh, bond yields coming down. And of course, that means that the banks don't stand to earn as much on their loans and investments. That being the case, yet uh, pretty much every uh, financial stock in the S&P 500 is higher today. So that's certainly a group kind of front and center helping things along. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, we've kind of gotten to the point, you know, a week left in the quarter where there's not a whole lot of company news to really focus on. So it's maybe just the idea that you know, market in motion stays in motion as well, much as anything else. With financials, there is an interesting dynamic which took hold over the weekend. And I want to bring in Lionel Laurent uh, to join us and sort of give us some perspective on what happened in Italy. Lionel is a columnist covering finance and markets for Bloomberg Gadfly and comes to us from London. So, uh, Lionel, there was this... Uh, bailout, basically, orchestrated by Italy, a $19 billion bailout, the biggest ever for Italy to bail out two troubled banks. And the market is cheering. I thought that after what happened and the ECB rules and the uh, some of the provisions that there couldn't be a bailout like this. How does this, how is this kosher? Yeah, I think you've been paying attention uh, maybe too uh, closely <laughs> and forgotten that actually this is a very political story. I mean, Italy uh, is, is simply a very big economy. Uh, if you're going to bend the rules for a country, it may as well be a big one. And uh, I think that, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that the fact this is a record is because Italy's actually been, been quite a good 
you know, child in terms of the of the crisis. It didn't it didn't have as bad a crisis as some of the other countries. But essentially, what you're seeing here is a is a bailout that basically you know protects depositors, protects senior bondholders, but at taxpayers' expense. And I think the market uh, forgot that there just might be that little escape route for a country like Italy. So. Is this basically the rally that we're seeing in financials today? Is this basically a relief rally that, yes, if there is a problem in markets, governments will, after all, bail banks out again? Well, I, th- I think you know it, it is good news that you have uh, two weak banks in Italy out of the system. I think that it comes recently uh, after another weak bank, this time in Spain, was taken out of the system. So I feel like there is good news to be taken out of this, right? I think that the that the problem is on a more kind of political level, on a more kind of future level, right? I mean, if, if banks do come back to the market, do investors think twice about the whole story of the Eurozone rulebook, or will they be as pragmatic uh, as the uh, politicians and regulators seem to be. Dave, is the rally in financials more pronounced in European firms? Well, let me just take a quick look here. You go to the stock 600 just to uh, get an idea. I mean, that's essentially uh, the European version of the S&P 500. And as far as today's trading goes, uh, well, the financial stocks really aren't kind of leading the way. All right. It's, you All know, right, not, so not, not an extreme move by any means. In fact, there are a whole lot of groups doing better in Europe than the financials. So, you know, it's uh, another day, another adventure. All right. Well, Lionel, I wanted to talk a little bit about the debt, right? Because as part of this bailout, the senior bondholders would get prioritized. They wouldn't lose any money. And the junior bondholders would get wiped out, sort of, right? Because there is a large retail ownership component to Italy's uh, junior bank bonds. In other words, just your mom and pop investors own a lot of the subordinated bonds and the government couldn't let them just take losses right right exactly and it's it's the sort of that's key uh, so basically I, th- I think there's going to be an attempt to get a fund together of about 200 million euros to basically reimburse uh, investors who have been allegedly missold uh, some of these securities so this is from a culture where you know, these bonds, these securities, anything to do with banks were sold as, you know, really secure, really safe, uh, lifelong investments. And Intesa San Paolo, which is the big, strong Italian bank that's going to be buying these weak banks for about a euro, has also promised it will uh, pay out money to uh, small savers that are going to suffer from this. So, I th- you know, even here you get a, you know, yes, junior bondholders wiped out, but it's the it's the sort of that's that's in question. So, so it looks like about a quarter of the junior uh, debt outstanding will find some kind of uh, refund or recourse. Does this set any precedent? Because in Italy, am I mistaken? Uh, my, my impression is that in Italy, mom and pop investors own a disproportionate amount of these junior bonds. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, th- I think it's about half. So I I mean, does, half, it, yeah. does this set a precedent that if anything does happen, that there needs to be some provision where retail holders of these bonds need to get compensated on some level or else there'll be political turmoil. <laughs> <laughs> this this is obviously all part of the negotiation, all part of the calculation. Uh, I think it's also pure litigation risk uh, as well uh, that, that, you know, sadly in this case as well, the taxpayer is on the hook for, right? I mean, the, the taxpayer through guarantees to the buyer in Teza is also helping to cover future litigation risk which I'm sure will cover also taxpayers. We're, 
we are we are delving into uh, the capital structure of these banks, the nexus between you know politics and finance and, and and households and institutional investors, and that is what these governments and regulators try to unpick uh, every time a bank goes against the wall. Lionel Laurent, thank you so much for joining us and for your perspective. Lionel Laurent is a columnist covering finance and markets for Bloomberg Gadfly, coming to us from uh, London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.